All right, uh, time to move to this uh, study of God's Word. So please turn with me to First Peter, uh, chapter 3. I originally thought we were going to make it through this chapter in one sitting, and uh, it's clearly not turned out to be the case. We're on our third session of this chapter, but there's so much in the chapter. There's so many things that we need to highlight and look at. And this morning is one of those studies that's uh, a little different, and I'm sure that we are... Uh, one of very few churches probably in this land today that will be looking at and talking through the things we're going to be going through. But that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that sadly a lot of people uh, have uh, come out of a, a, a system um, from the, the time of the, the Catholic Church into the Anglican Church and then so on through the Reformation, where many of the, the doctrines in Scripture weren't really addressed. Church went back to the totally important understanding of being saved by grace. Of course, Martin Luther, very much a champion of that. But there was many other areas of scripture that really weren't addressed at the time of the Reformation. And sadly, all the churches that have then come out of the denominations have never gone back and addressed a lot of the, the other issues. When we go back to the early church, we find that they did have these understandings and the things we'll be looking at this morning. They're not fringe views. They're not just way out ideas. These are things that we've got documentary evidence to show that the early church held the same beliefs that we're going to be looking at and talking through this morning. But Okay, so we are into the last portion of this chapter. So if we move into uh, chapter uh, three, and we're going to pick it up actually verse 17, because obviously that's where we kind of uh, left off. That was our last verse last week. Uh, Let me just give you a quick summary before we go in, though, because what Peter has been telling us now is that we have this position in Christ, this incredibly uh, exalted position. We've We've been told already, and if you remember... Peter uh, said back in chapter 2 that we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvellous life, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. An incredible statement of the position that we hold as believers. And so because of this position that we have in Christ, Peter has exalted us already through the study, through first Peter we've been looking at to start thinking. Now, my contention is, and people may be offended by this, but most people don't think today. I'm sure you can understand what I'm saying. You know, that people just go along with what they're told. We have a media, we have an entertainment industry, we have so many other things that do the thinking for us. Uh, we have a so-called free press that is uh, um, so intent on feeding us what they want us to know and believe and think. Um, you know, but what Peter says is that we should think soberly. And it's back in chapter 1, verse 13. It really is to start thinking clearly and properly. We should be thinking differently now that we're believers. In verse 14 of chapter 1, we are exhorted to not be like that which we used to be. We, we should have changed. Our lives should now be different, you know, demonstrably so. People should see it by our actions, by our lifestyle, by our character, our nature, that we are now different people. We are supposed to be new creations, new, new creatures in Christ. The old things should have passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's what we should be like. And so this is what Peter's saying now. Make sure this is the, the way it is for you. Then we're exhorted to be holy because God is holy. We're no longer 
part of the world's family, as it were. We've been adopted into God's family. We're now his children and we should start to take on his characteristics and his likenesses. Uh, any parent knows that your children start to pick up your characters, your, your character traits. You know, they start to see what you're like as an individual and they kind of mimic and echo those things. Then we're told that we should show genuine love for other Christians. All right. So that's how we should now be. We should recognize that we are part of this family together. And as a family, we should stick together. We should support each other, help each other, encourage each other, edify each other. Into chapter two, we're told very clearly that we need to act differently. Uh, again, this is really the, the, the kind of characteristics, the things that other people get to see. And it's got to be in the things that we say. We, we can't, we can no longer just be casual in the things we say. We have to think very carefully. Uh, and also in the things that we do. People are going to take notice of those things. We need to make a, a conscious effort to avoid sin. We're told that we need to be good ambassadors for Christ in this world, effectively, is what we're told in chapter 2, verse 12. Now, let me just give you a little example. This week, uh, I had two individuals at work who decided to uh, nip over to a shop that's not far from, from our office block. Um, they were wearing the uh, work's liveried T-shirts, so it had obviously clearly statement of, of who they worked for. Um, and obviously, it's a big UK brand. Everybody knows the brand. Um, we had... A, a complaint from a member of the public because apparently these two individuals well it was a very hot sunny day but they were standing there looking at all the young ladies walking past now this came back to us had they not been wearing the works t-shirt i'm not saying it's a good thing at all but nevertheless it wouldn't have reflected on the company but it did you see when you wear the the company livery as it were when you're wearing the company logo everything you do becomes scrutinized in relation to that company, people look at the, the company in the light of what they see of its employees. Now, as Christians, we are to be good ambassadors. Paul makes that point that we're ambassadors for Christ. That means that wherever we go, even if we don't think people are watching us, they are. They see us. People will know that we're Christians. People will either hear from others. I mean, you may have sometimes been surprised that, you know, you enter a new environment, new situation, a new workplace. And very quickly, people will find out you're a Christian before you even tell others. The news travels kind of quite, quite quickly. You know, and I've had a number of people in, the, in different occasions in the past that have come up and said, oh, you're a Christian. And I've not said anything to them at that point. But they've obviously heard. Now, you can't just make the assumption, oh, well, nobody knows I can get away with it. That, that's not the way we should be. Everything we do matters. When you're in the supermarket, you know, when you're just out in the shops, when you're in the workplace, wherever you are, even if you're just going out for a walk, the things that you do will be seen by others. And you never know who's going to see you, who knows you're a Christian. And therefore, your words, your actions, your deeds are going to all reflect back on Jesus Christ. So we need to be very, very aware of the impression we create and the fact that we should be honouring to Jesus Christ by the way we live. Well, then Peter goes on in chapter 2 from verse 13 onwards, saying that we need to submit to authority. And he gives us the example of being uh, submissive to the government and also to employers. And he makes the point, even if you've got a bad employer, guess what? You should still be a good servant, a good employee. Uh, because that's honouring. And we're given the example of Jesus himself, who endured all sorts of affliction uh, and, and did it faithfully, because that brings glory to God. Then Peter goes on and says that wives are to submit to their husbands. 
And again, even if those husbands are not necessarily good husbands, as we commented when we were looking at this portion a couple of weeks back now, you know, the, the wives are not to submit to the husbands because the husbands deserve it. They're to do it because this is what God commands. This is God's order. It's his uh, perfect way for a family unit to function. But in the same token, then the husbands also have to honour their wives. And they don't honour their wives because their wives are really good all the time and get everything right and do all the things that they want them to do. No, no, we're to honour our wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, the church often fails. The church, church often doesn't do that which Jesus would have us do. You know, we, we do stumble, we fall. Well, guess what? That doesn't mean we stop honouring our wives' husbands. So these things apply to each one of us. And then we've got into this section now, uh, we were looking at this last time, that we're to patiently endure affliction. When difficult situations arise, when trials come, particularly because of our faith, we're to endure those hardships. It's very much what James tells us. And so this is the uh, opening uh, we, for this morning. And it says, this is the last verse we looked at last week, but it leads beautifully into where we're going this morning. And it says, for it is better if it is the will of God, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil doing. Uh, so Peter's now going to give us two arguments why we should endure suffering when it's God's will. The first one, he's going to give us the example of Jesus himself. And he's going to say that Jesus endured suffering and reproach by going to the cross. And, of course, thereby Jesus thwarted the plans of Satan and thus fulfilled the will of God that many might be saved. That's the first example. The second one is of Noah. And, of course, Noah patiently endured ridicule and persecution for 120 years while the ark was being built. But of course, thereby thwarting the plans of Satan and thus fulfilling the will of God that many might be saved. You see, this is why Peter's saying, you know, we need to endure suffering. If we suffer for well-doing because we're serving God, then it's not a bad thing because God has a plan and a purpose in those things. If God allows those things in our lives, he has a plan and a purpose. We might not see the end result. How much Noah really understood of what was going to happen when he started building the ark, we don't really know. You know, clearly God had made it clear that he was going to destroy or deal with this world, this the, the world as it was. And Noah had been given this instruction. Noah didn't understand how many might or would be saved. He didn't know, I'm sure at that point, it was going to be just eight. Maybe, maybe he had something clear. But either way, he was faithful in what he did because God had a plan. Well, when we go through suffering... We need to be faithful. We may not know the end result, but God has a plan. And through the suffering we endure, particularly as I say, if it's because we are serving Jesus Christ, if we're living our lives for his glory, well, then God is doing something through that situation. Then we now move into verse 18. And this is an incredibly important verse. It really, it, it just summarizes the gospel in a sense. And we read, for Christ has once also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Uh, this is what we read. Just such again, such a, a, a important verse in our, our understanding around this. Firstly, notice we're told that the just for the unjust. See, Jesus was sinless; he hadn't done anything wrong. In contrast to that. We're the unjust. We were guilty. We should have been condemned. And of course, scripture tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, 
that Jesus endured that suffering to fulfill the will of God, even though we didn't deserve what he was doing, Jesus was faithful. Jesus was obedient because there was a bigger picture. And Jesus knew that by fulfilling the will of God, many would be saved. Again, he was just, we were unjust. And yet we read in Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. There's a contrast between him and us here. It's incredible. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. See, Jesus endured that affliction because he was being obedient to God's will. And Peter's using this as a really powerful example, saying, look, if you're going through a difficult time, endure it. If you're being persecuted because you're a Christian, endure it. Because this is part of God's will and part of God's plan. And you don't know how much good will come out of this and what God's uh, plan is in the bigger picture for the individuals that are involved in your situation, for the individuals that look on at your suffering and that which you're going through. Notice also that this verse tells us that the work is complete, that Christ is the only one who has completed the work. Notice it says, for Christ also has once suffered. You know, there isn't anybody else that has suffered. There wasn't anybody else that went to the cross and paid for our sins. No other religious leader or character in history was either able to or willing to go to the cross for mankind. Notice also we're told that nothing can be added to the work that's done. Okay, it's also, for Christ has also once suffered. It's done. It doesn't need to be repeated. It's not something that we have to add to. And of course, salvation, we know because of this, is available to all mankind. The the, the unjust, that's the category we're all in. Because Jesus, the just, suffered for the unjust. That's all of mankind. All right. So he once suffered for sins. And let me get on to the comments about the resurrection here. The resurrection, of course, is attributed to the work of the Father. That's in Acts chapter 2, 24, Romans 6, 4. It's attributed to being the work of the Son in John 10, 17 and 18 and John 2, verse 19. And, of course, being the work of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter three eighteen, as we're looking at here, and also Romans 8, verse 11. You know, so this work of resurrection was a work of the Trinity. It's the Godhead was all, were all involved in this work of the resurrection. And this incredible uh, raising Jesus from the grave, bringing him back to life again, as we're told, as the first fruit of all those who would later be raised from the dead. And of course, that speaks of you and I. Uh, but it's interesting to note here that we're told here that it's the Holy Spirit but it's quickened by the Spirit. Now, we're going to move from this and springboard uh, onto something that the next verse is, is going to throw at us. Because uh, it says, by which, now we need to look at the context, just go back to the previous statement. So we need to bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit by which, so quickened by the spirit, by which also, by the spirit, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing 
wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. This, indeed, is a strange verse. It's one of those verses that many Christians read and think, I really don't understand what that means, and probably if you're well-adjusted, you'll just move on and not worry too much. But actually, we're told that it's, it's, it's the duty of kings to search out a matter. Well, we are told that we are a royal priesthood, so it's our responsibility to dig in and understand really what this means. So, Firstly, we need to look at this strange statement here. Uh, we're told that the Spirit of Christ went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Well, there's a number of questions that are going to come from this. So for, firstly, who or what are the spirits? Then why are they in prison? Is the next question we should ask. Who preached to them? We've had an, in, an indication of that already in the verse we just read. But when were they preached to? And why were they preached to? What was the purpose of preaching to them? Well, let's go through and try and unpack this verse and look, because there's a lot of instruction that comes out of this and uh, uh, hopefully will give us a greater understanding uh, of some things that maybe uh, we've not fully comprehended, but it gives us a better grasp of scripture and God's plan and purpose and so on. Well, if we look in the Bible at the times the word spirits is used, we find a number of occasions that, that we find this reference. Uh, in Leviticus 19.31, we're told, Regard not them that have familiar spirits, uh, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them, them I am the Lord your God. In this context, spirits are referred to as being demonic entities. Individuals that uh, are uh, taken over or influenced by demonic spirits. In Numbers 16.22, we're told there, and they fell upon their faces, said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. Now, clearly, in the context here, this is talking about mankind, because God is the, the father uh, of us all, in that sense, the father of spirits. And we're told the, the God of the spirits of all flesh. Now, the word flesh is a very clear indication this is talking about human beings. So the spirits can refer to, obviously, demonic entities, it can refer to human beings, then we have in Psalm 104, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers of flaming fire. So clearly angels are also referred to as being spirits, which is no surprise. We know that they are spirit beings. In Zechariah 6, 5, we have another interesting uh, use of this word. It says, there are four spirits of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth again this would seem to have some sort of reference to the angelic beings probably cherubim or some other exalted or higher class of angels that have particular roles to do the serving the lord in a particular way but again spiritual beings uh, in mark 3 now we get to the gospels we find many many times this reference to spirit so uh, an unclean spirit when they saw him fell down before him and cried saying thou art the son of god now of course we're familiar with this uh, usage from the new testament we often have unclean spirits mentioned and again it's talking about demonic entities demonic beings spirit beings that are malevolent in uh, Hebrews twelve twenty three, it says there to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. OK, so once again, it's speaking of human beings in this category. So in a sense, we're no clearer, but at least we've got a little bit of background now. Spirits can refer to angels. We actually find at least four occasions Man, at seven times in scripture, the word spirits is used specifically in regard to man. The Holy Spirit, uh, there's at least four times we find this reference. And in Revelation, we have reference to the seven spirits of God, which seemingly are speaking of the Holy Spirit. 
uh, and then at least 30 times. So that the largest category is in reference to demons, demonic beings or fallen angels. Now, we know very, very clearly uh, that Satan rebelled. Uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 give us the details of this. We looked at it a little while ago in our study in Isaiah. Um, that when Lucifer, who was this light-bearing, wonderful angel, um, this, this um, cherubim, uh, he rebelled against God. And Revelation 12 tells us he took a third of all the angels with him when he rebelled. And we've talked about the reasons why this happened. You know, it must have been a, a major thing for many of the angels to follow after Satan. Clearly, there was an issue. They were disgruntled. And we understand, of course, why that was when on the sixth day, God creates man and gives man dominion over this earth, which the angels were thinking was going to be theirs. Satan thought it was going to be his. Again, we've talked about this before. The book of Esther is your model to explain, in a sense, the fall of Satan, what happened and, and all that took place. Of course, you got Haman as the type of Satan in that uh, account that we have in the book of Esther. Chuck Minister makes a comment. He says the spirits uh, or Eumacin is the the Greek uh, is a term usually applied to supernatural beings. And that is the most consistent usage of this term Uh, and are described in 1 Peter 3.20 as those who were disobedient when God waited patiently for Noah to finish building the ark. So clearly the implication is the ones in view in this particular portion we're looking at in Peter, the reference here to these spirits is a reference to supernatural beings, these seemingly demonic uh, or fallen angelic beings. And we're going to come back and look at that in more detail now. There's a number of potentially doctrinal issues that have come about through the centuries. Uh, back about to 200 years uh, after, or about 150 years really after the time of Jesus, uh, Clement of Alexander taught that Jesus Christ was sent to Hades in his spirit, which is not incorrect in itself, we'll come back to that, but to proclaim the message of salvation to the souls of sinners who were imprisoned there since the flood. Now, that doesn't really fit the context. It doesn't fit what's actually said. Um, and also it opens up a bit of an issue because it's very clear that there is no conversion after death. And numerous scriptures make that very, very clear. When you enter from this life into eternity, the decision is made. You, you cannot change your mind. You cannot repent once you've died. Your decision now, time now, so the decision time is now. You know, the day is a day of salvation. Uh, now, of course, biblically, when humans die, we're told in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, that the spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, that's an interesting statement in itself, because we often find in Scripture, when departed humans are spoken of, they're referred to as souls, not as spirits. Now, it's not surprising in light of what Ecclesiastes 12, 7 tells us, because if the spirit returns to God, then actually what we are, the real us, is our soul. Our soul is made up of our heart and our mind. And uh, you've got various references you can check there. First Kings 17, 21, Job 33, 28 and 30, Psalm 16, verse 10, Jonah chapter 2, verses 5 and 7, and of course Revelation 6, uh, verse 9, and also Revelation 20, verse 4. Revelation 6, 9 is an interesting one because it speaks of those who have died, who have been martyred, but it doesn't speak of them as spirits, it speaks of them as souls. It looks at the souls who were under the altar. 
So typically, uh, in regard to humans that have died, uh, when we've spoken of after, we refer to as souls, not as spirits. So the idea that Clement of Alexander put forward really doesn't fit the scriptural um, profile we have of these things. So Augustine, uh, another individual, I would urge you to be always very cautious. Uh, anything you read or hear about Augustine, I'm not saying everything he said was wrong, but so many of the things that he told, he said, were embraced by the Roman Catholic Church and then became, in a sense, church doctrine. And those things have never been checked or recovered. And there's a lot of errors introduced into the church around about this time of church history, around about 400 AD. Well, he said that the pre-existent Christ, now, of course, that's not a problem in itself. We know that the third, sort of the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, the second person of the Trinity uh, does appear in the Old Testament in numerous ways. Um, uh, God manifests uh, effectively in kind of human form. We see an example uh, with Abraham, the Oaks of Mamre, and there's num numerous other examples where God appears in some sort of uh, human form in the Old Testament. He's seen, of course, Joshua the night before the Battle of Jericho goes out and meets the commander of the the, the hosts of the Lord's army there. Um, but Augustine said that the pre-existent Christ proclaims salvation through Noah to the people who lived before the flood. If you understand what we're told in Genesis, and we're going to go to some of the scriptures in a moment, that doesn't work because clearly God had actually decreed judgment on these people. Uh, and although there was uh, preaching, we'll talk about it in a while, that doesn't seem to be the message that was sent. So that doesn't work either. It's, it's not consistent with the language and the context and, and God's purpose in these things. Well, uh, we go on. Um, Peter's making the point here that we should endure hardship, persecution and suffering within the will of God that his purpose might be fulfilled. So let's keep that in our mind as we start to unravel this a bit further. And Noah is therefore cited here as someone who suffered because he was obedient to God's will. Now, Peter's also been highlighting divine order if you remember in the previous verses and the importance of submitting to it so peter's not suddenly changing tact and going off on a tangent he's staying very consistent with the things he's already said okay now peter states that the spirit of christ went and preached to the spirits in prison and so the clear implication is that they were in prison at the time christ preached to them that's very clear clearly implied in the text so preaching um it's not preaching as you and I tend to think of kind of uh, preaching the gospel this is a proclamation okay the the greek word keriso uh, uh, means to announce or to proclaim to proclaim after the manner of a herald and it doesn't imply repentance as its object it's more a declaration of fact and actually it's consistent with what we read in ephesians 4 uh, 8 through 10 and colossians 2 13 which we'll look at Ephesians 4, it says this, Wherefore he said, when he ascended up on high, this is speaking of Jesus at the time of the resurrection, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And it says now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? This is a strange verse. And then he, he that descended is the same that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fulfill all things what the verse is saying is at the time of the crucifixion when jesus died his body was of course put into the tomb 
but his spirit descended into the lower parts of the earth. It's what you and I would call hell or Hades or Sheol, the pit. Those words are used interchangeably uh, in the Bible. We have some Greek and Hebrew terms there. Um, but then it's saying that after this, it's saying he led captivity captive. Now, we'll come back to that and try and explain what that is in a moment. But the, the Jesus led captivity captive. It's seemingly his purpose for going to the lower parts of the earth was to take that which was captive and lead it and set it free effectively. And we'll, we'll talk about it. Psalm 16 verse 10 actually concurs with this. It says, for thou will not leave my soul in hell. Well, clearly this is a, a, a messianic psalm looking forward to Jesus. Neither will thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Now, this is quoted in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, uh, 27 and 31, and chapter 13. It's, it's used a number of times in the New Testament, this verse, speaking of the fact that Jesus would indeed visit hell. He would go into hell. Now, just to clarify, to make it really clear, in the Bible, the word hell, or the, the phrase we have translated as hell, can mean either the temporary holding place where people are waiting for judgment, or it can mean the eternal lake of fire. Now, normally, when we speak of hell, we think of the eternal lake of fire. That's the place that is yet uh, to come onto a horizon effectively. Uh, it's the first individual to go into hell will be Antichrist, followed by the false prophet. And then ultimately, Satan will be cast in there and all unbelievers at the time of the great white throne judgment at the end. So that is the eternal hell that is yet to come in a sense. The hell that normally spoken of, the one that Jesus often spoke about, um, was this place uh, which seemingly, from scripture, is implied it's in the centre of the earth, in whatever dimension or form that exists. But that those who die now, without Christ, go to this place. Now, in the Old Testament, those who died also went down into the earth. Jesus, no exception at this point, when he died, physically died, he also went down to this place. Now we'll try and explain it in a bit more detail. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 says, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespass, blotting out the handwriting of an ord ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and notice this verse, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross and having spoiled principalities and powers and their ranks of angels, their angelic beings. And he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, that clearly implies that Jesus, in some capacity, after he'd died, made a point of ex or, or uh, demonstrating his victory, proclaiming his victory to the principalities and powers that clearly uh, would indicate this is the reason, one of the reasons he went down to Hades, Hell, Sheol, the pit, and makes his point of triumphing open, openly uh, again over them. Right, let's piece it together. So at the time of the crucifixion, as I said, Jesus' body was placed in the tomb. His spirit descended into Hades, Sheol, the pit, hell, those terms again. He declared his victory to the principalities and the powers, that verse we've just looked at. He took captivity with him back to heaven. Well, what is his captivity? I mentioned this a moment ago. Well, in Luke 16, verse 19 to 31, in the sense we're given there the floor plan of Hades, if you like, the, the, the layout of this place. It was divided into two sections. There was paradise, also referred to as Abraham's bosom, which was a place for the righteous, 
and then there was a place of torment for the unrighteous. In the Old Testament, all saints who died went down into the earth. None of them went up into heaven. They all went down into the earth. They went down to this place, to Hades, to Abraham's bosom, to, to paradise. Okay, And now, of course, since the cross, all that die now go up to be with Christ in heaven. Paul makes it very clear when he said that he, uh, he was torn between two things. He said, you know, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But he said, it's more needful that I remain and carry on my ministry for you, basically. So Peter, uh, so Paul knew that if he were to die, he would go to be with Christ. Well, of course, Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. So we've got clear scriptures that tell us that now any believer that dies goes to heaven to be with Jesus. But that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. So at some point, there was this change. That point occurred at the time of the resurrection. Jesus went down into Hades, Sheol, the pit, this place. He led the captivity, those who were believing, those who were the righteous ones, and led them back to heaven. Now, the question, of course, why did Jesus have to go to Hades? And why couldn't the Old Testament saints go straight to heaven? Let's ask that question. Well, quite simply, because there is salvation in no other name. Only in the name of Jesus, Acts 4.12 makes it very clear. And of course, no one can come to the Father except through Christ, John 6.44. So even the likes of Abraham and Moses and David, Isaiah, Daniel, et al., all these individuals uh, could not enter heaven until the temple veil had been torn in two and a way had been made by the blood of Christ, until we'd been purchased, ransomed by that blood, as we were looking at earlier. So it took the death of Christ to make it possible for any individual to go to heaven, which is why before the cross, there had to be a waiting room, for want of a better expression, where the righteous, believing individuals could wait until such a time that Jesus would descend he would present himself to them simply so they could say, we believe in you. We accept you. You are the Messiah that we were looking forward to. David wrote many Psalms about the Messiah. He looked forward to the one who was coming. Isaiah, of course, wrote so much about the Messiah. And of course, even Abraham and all these other characters in the Old Testament. But none of them could enter heaven except through Jesus Christ. So they all had to put their faith and trust in him, which meant there had to be an opportunity for them to do that. That opportunity occurs at the time of the uh, crucifixion as Jesus then descends, his, his body in the grave, but his spirit descends into the lower parts of the earth. He presents himself to these individuals, declares his victory publicly, effectively, so that all the principalities that are there get to hear it. They get to, to see this declaration. And of course, then all those that have died in faith are then moved from that place within the earth to now reside in heaven, where they're awaiting the next thing on the calendar, really, for them, which is the rapture, when each of them will get resurrected bodies and then we with them will return to be with the Lord forever. And so everyone waiting in paradise had to accept Christ as their personal saviour. And then Christ could lead captivity captive. Okay, so I hope that all kind of makes sense. Let's get back to this verse then and try and understand it. So we're told again, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. So now the question is, we know when Jesus went and that we know this preaching is proclaiming. We've got a good understanding of who the spirits are. But then we have this statement, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. 
So now we're told specifically, this isn't just any spirit. This is a particular group of spirits. And we're given the time frame when they did what was wrong. And it was in the days leading up to the flood. Okay, they were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. Again, we're told that only a few people were saved. Right. Now, let's just think these things through, because mankind, of course, had rebelled against the message of God during the years the ark was being built. And God had declared he wouldn't tolerate people's wickedness forever. But because he is long suffering, he extended this period of time for 120 years. He made that declaration that man's time will be in Genesis 3, 6 verse 3 will be 120 years. Some people mistakenly think that God was giving man a lifespan of 120. That's not what it's saying. It said God would hold off judgment for that long. How do we know that? Well, because we have an interesting character in the Bible called Methuselah. I'm sure you're very familiar. Methuselah was the oldest man, according to the Bible, who ever lived. He lived 969 years. Now, Methuselah, when he was 187 years old, had a son by the name of Lamech. Lamech, when he was 182 years old, had a son called Noah. Now, we happen to know that the flood came in the 600th year of Noah's life. Well, if we do our maths and we add it all together, we find that Methuselah died the very year the flood came. I suspect it would have been the week before. the day. The, if you know, uh, Noah went into the ark and God shut the door. I believe at that point that would have been where Methuselah died. We know for a fact that his name means when he dies, it shall come. That's what the name Methuselah means. It's made up of two Greek, uh, two Hebrew root words. And it is his name was a prophecy. It was a prophecy of the coming judgment. And so for at least 120 years, the world had had this individual who was very old. I'm sure everybody was have known of Methuselah. You know, if somebody's old today, you know, get to, you know, past a hundred, you kind of, you, you get to hear about that individual. Well, imagine somebody being, you know, 800 years old or so. Well, you know, getting up to 969 years at the time he dies, people would have known about him. They'd have no doubt known that his name means when he dies, it will come. And by that point, of course, Noah was already well on with building the ark. In fact, by the time he dies, the ark was finished. We also know that Jude, uh, from Jude rather, that Enoch lived during that period of time. Uh, he'd also been a preacher of righteousness. This was what Enoch did. He, he, his role was to be a teacher. And of course, Noah's obedience in building the ark would have been a very powerful testimony and a warning of the coming judgment. So God is long-suffering. God had given those pre-flood individuals plenty of opportunity to repent, to turn around. There was opportunity there. The preaching was there. It was very clear at the time, but they rejected it. You see, since the entire human race, except Noah, was evil, God determined to wipe mankind from the face of the earth, which is what Genesis 6 verses 5 through 9 tells us. And therefore, the spirits referred to in 1 Peter may be the souls of the evil human race that existed in the days of Noah. And it could be that those spirits are now in prison, awaiting the final judgment of God at the end of the age, but it doesn't quite fit the context again. Clearly, God had provided an opportunity for them to, to hear the message that judgment was coming, but that doesn't seem to fit the context of Peter. You see, the Spirit of Christ preached through Noah, as we've clearly said, to the ungodly humans who at the time of Peter's writing were indeed spirits in prison. They were in Hades, they were in the, the, the um, torment part of Hades, awaiting the final judgment. 
Now, the interpretation kind of fits the general theme, you know, that Peter's saying that we should keep a good conscience in unjust persecution. Of course, Noah did that. Noah, no doubt, would have had persecution during that time. So it fits the theme, but it doesn't seem to really tick the boxes in terms of those individuals who lived before the flood being the ones who are spoken of here as the spirits in prison. Uh, Chuck Minister made the comment, he said, Noah is presented as an example of one who committed himself to a course of action for the sake of a clear conscience before God, though it meant enduring harsh ridicule. Well, that fits exactly what Peter's saying. Now, let's just look at this again, because we're told that which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. Now, this long-suffering, we've seen this 120 years Again, that God uh, postponed the flood for. The Lord, as we're told in Second Peter, is not uh, willing that any should perish, but is long-suffering toward us. Now, of course, in Christ's day, the spirits of those men who Noah preached to were in prison, but they rejected the message of Noah, and they'd gone to Sheol. They were waiting for judgment. They were lost. Okay, But Christ, I believe, did not go down and preach to them after he died on the cross. Why? Because they'd had their opportunity to repent. All right? He preached through Noah, Enoch, Methuselah, and so on, as we mentioned a moment ago, when once the long-suffering of God waited. But there was not a second chance now. This isn't implying that for these individuals there was a second chance for them to, to respond or to believe. And as we've said already, this preaching that, Noah, that um, Peter refers to is more of a proclamation than a, a, a presenting or preaching of good news of the gospel or so on. So for 120 years, Noah had preached this word of God. He'd saved his family, but no one else. And it was the spirit of Christ who spoke through Noah in Noah's day, no doubt. Uh, but of course, in Christ's day, those who rejected Noah's message were in prison. This is what is from the, the context. Again, Chuck Miller says, The thought is that Christ's death meant nothing to them, just as it means nothing to a great many people today, who, as a result, will also come into judgment. So some people will argue, and I'll try and make the case, that the Peter is referring, these spirits in prison, were simply those who had died before the flood and that Jesus went to preach to them, either through Noah at the time or at the time of the, the crucifixion. But that doesn't quite work. It doesn't fit the details. And there'll be no need for Christ to preach to them in that sense. They'd had their opportunity. So I don't think that works. Now, back in the 19th century, uh, a, an individual by the name of Frederick uh, Speter um, said, hang on a minute, maybe this doesn't apply to those human beings at that point. What about the fallen angels that are spoken of in Genesis 6? And this idea started to gain traction. Now, let me make it very clear. I'll show you in a minute. This wasn't something new that Frederick Speeder suddenly came up with. It was just one of the more recent individuals that's brought this back to kind of prominence in terms of our understanding. Now, we do know from the verses we've all looked at that Christ did pass through the realm where the fallen angels are kept and proclaimed his triumph over them. We, we've seen that already. The verse in Colossians makes that very clear. Uh, just as an aside, this idea is actually supported by the traditional rabbinic literature. There's a non-biblical book called the Book of Enoch that also implies this. Uh, the Twelfth Testimony of the Twelve Patriarchs seems to confirm this. Another writing, uh, uh, Josephus, is the same. And of course, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, also concurs with this idea. And many others. Modern scholars also go along with this, uh, and so on. Now, let's go back to Genesis, because we need to just do a little bit of homework before we can just tie this up. We're reading Genesis chapter 6. Verse 1, it came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, 
that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, this statement that took them wives, the woman, the, the, the phrase in the, the Hebrew uh, is literally meaning women. There's no debate or question as to who it's speaking of. It's talking about the, the women of the earth. But this strange expression we have, the sons of God saw these women and took them as wives. Who were the sons of God? Well, the Hebrew is this word, benai ha Elohim. All right? And it's always used to identify a direct creation of God. Now, in the Old Testament, it's almost exclusively used of angels. We see that uh, in this context here, but also in the book of Job. In the New Testament, sons of God is translated we, we, with that expression of believers, those who have made, been made a direct creation of God. See, in John 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We are now a direct creation of God. We are a recreation. God has made us new. So this expression refers to a direct creation of God. So we're told that these sons of God, clearly from the context, angelic beings, saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And this is the really scary, freaky, way out statement. And they took them wives of all which they chose. The statement, daughters of men, some have kind of challenged this to try and make it seem other than it clearly says in the text. The, the statement is benoth adam in the, the, the Hebrew. And it just literally means the daughters of Adam. There's no debate over what that actually means. It doesn't mean any other than, than what the plain text on the surface tells us. And then we're told in verse 4 that there were Nephilim, in the earth in those days and also after that that's a scary statement too uh, when the sons of god came in unto the daughters of men so these angelic beings had relationships with human women and they bear children to them and we're told the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown now some people said oh they became men of great stature well that's clearly not the the case from the many verses in the bible that speak of this interestingly that word nephilim it comes from the verb nephal, uh, nephal and it means to fall to be cast down these were literally the fallen ones the ones who had been cast down very consistent with the whole idea here that these angels had rebelled against God. Some of them came and took women of the earth and had children with them, and they were cast down. They were deserters, effectively. That phrase, mighty men, in the Hebrew is hagibarim, and it means the mighty ones. Now, there's a bit of a um, kind of a, a translational thing here, because in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it translates them as gigantes. And that's where we get our word giant. Now, it just so happens that these individuals, the offspring of these angels and the humans, were giants. But that's not what the word means. Gigantis doesn't mean giant. Gigantis actually comes from this, uh, this word in the Greek, which means earthborn. Okay, that's, that's what it means. So we've got these fallen ones, these ones who were born on the earth. And then we're told also after that. Uh, these individuals. These are the Rephaim that we read much about in the Old Testament. In fact, there were tribes of giants in the land in Abraham's time, in around 2000 BC. Genesis 14, 15, that makes that clear. And of course, remnants of them existed as late as the time of Moses, about 1400 BC, and even down to the time of David in 1000 BC. And of course, we're all very familiar with a particular giant that David faced. 
And you only need to read those portions that I've listed on the, the screen there. Numbers uh, 13, Deuteronomy chapter 2, uh, chapter 11, uh, and, uh, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 10, 11, 20, 21, make it very, very clear that these were abnormal beings. Joshua, of course, uh, you know, we were talking a few weeks ago with the children about the conquest of Canaan, why those 10 spies were so frightened to enter the land. Joshua and Caleb said, let's go. God will give us victory. But the ten said, have you seen the size of the people living there? I mean, they weren't saying they, they, they were very respected, great men of stature. No, they were fearsome beings to look upon. Second Samuel, of course, 21, we have the account of uh, Goliath. Goliath, of course, I'm sure you're familiar, had four brothers. That's why David took five stones out of the brook. It wasn't because he thought he might miss the first time. It's because if Goliath's brothers decided to come out, he was ready for all five of them. Second, uh, sorry, First Chronicles 20 also speaks of these. We're told in Deuteronomy 3 that the iron bedstead of Og, who was the king of the Amorites, and he was a ruler of the, a nation of giants, was 15.4 feet long. I'll give you a picture in a minute to give you some idea of the scale of this. Um, Goliath, again, we're very familiar with, as we said, uh, from, is a family of giants more than 10 feet tall. And we totally wore a, a breastplate of mail wearing 5,000 shekels. That's about 126 pounds or 56 kilograms. Uh, as well as a spear like a weaver's beam. Uh, the spearhead, when weighed by itself, tipped the scales about 600 shekels or roughly about 15 pounds, uh, 7 kilograms. Um, Benaiah, one of David's mighty men, um, slew an Egyptian giant who we're told was 8.5 feet tall. All right, these individuals were not just in the lead up to the flood and the reason that God sent the flood, but they were also after the flood in the specific area where God had placed Abraham and his family and his descendants. What was their purpose? Well, their purpose was to simply try and stop the Messiah coming. These fallen angels and their offspring, they had one plan. This was obviously orchestrated by Satan, and that was to stop the Messiah. Okay. Now, of course, at the time of the flood, God brings judgment. These beings uh, would have drowned in the flood. And clearly, from the context of Scripture, they are imprisoned. And we'll look at some Scriptures that tell us that in a short while. They were imprisoned. And so it's no surprise then that when Jesus goes down to Hades, he declares his victory. They have been intent on stopping him coming. Well, Jesus not only turns up and says, I've come, but I've also now won the victory by dying on the cross he'd completed the work that god had sent him to do in josephus in texas the jews uh book one chapter three he says many angels of god accompanied with women and beget sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of their own strength these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the grecians called giants okay so just a historical reference to these beings Another of his quotes, he says, uh, there was till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this day. Now, you can't make a statement like that unless you've actually got some evidence to back it up. Clearly, Josephus was under no uh, uh, misunderstanding. These were real beings that had existed and the bones of them were still there to be viewed and seen. In the Giant Cities of Bashan and Syria's Holy Places book, uh, 1877, by the Reverend L.J. Porter, he makes this statement. I have no doubt 
that the occupants of Bashan or Bashan cities were very large people because of all the doorways were wide and high. However, I could not tell how high the rooms were because there was always a few feet of debris on the floor and entrances. I would have guessed 12 feet high on average. Interesting, you go to places like the British Museum and you'll find doors like that one and you're told, of course, they were just ornamental. But you have to start asking questions when you know what the Bible says about these individuals. Why would they really make these doors to these dwelling places and so on so big, so large? If you look at it on a scale, you can see on the left of the screen there, you've got the size of a normal six-foot man. And the third one in would be the height of Goliath, as recorded in the Bible. Uh, and then you can see uh, the second from the right is the height the Og, king of Bashan, would have been. You start to get an understanding of why, again, those ten spies that went into the land under Joshua were so frightened to go in when they saw individuals of that size. Again, you've only got to read through the opening of Deuteronomy and other portions of those verses I listed earlier. Make it abundantly clear. This wasn't just some um, fear that was unfounded. There was clear evidence of these things, these beings existing after the time of the flood. Now, interestingly, there's also a lot of um, mythological and historical confirmations of this. You know, most nations, ancient nations that exist today, have some sort of legend about these beings, beings that were part God, part human, that had come down from heaven. Uh, interestingly, you find the flying god of Asher. This is a, an image that I'm sure you may have seen. Certainly uh, lots of archaeology and things are replete with this type of image where you have a so-called god that has come down from heaven that then has a relationship with the woman of the earth. These, these ideas pervade all cultures. Of course, the Greek legends themselves are fascinating. The Greek titans, the word uh, actually uh, in the Greek means uh, genigas, and we'll come back to that in a minute. They were partly terrestrial, partly celestial creatures. So partly from heaven, partly from earth. There's, the idea is that they were interbreeding the, the Greek gods with human beings. By the way, that genea uh, means breed or kind. And actually where we get in English the word genes or genetic from it comes from the same room. Well, these According to Greek mythology, they rebelled against their father, uh, Uranus, and after a prolonged contest, they were defeated by Zeus and condemned into Tartarus. Now, that may all sound very fanciful and kind of just Greek mythology. Anybody that studied Greek mythology uh, or remembers a little bit from school will probably understand or remember some of those things. But the interesting thing is, it fits the biblical model. It fits exactly what the Bible says, that there were these beings that left their first estate, as we're going to see mentioned in a moment. They had these relationships with the women of the earth. They produced their offspring. And as a result, they were condemned into Tartarus. The reason that's interesting, and we'll mention this in a moment, is it's exactly the word that Peter will use in Second Peter. We'll come to it in a minute. In the Greek, the name of these individuals was Titan. In the Chaldean, it was Shetan. Guess what it was in Hebrew? Satan. Interesting, isn't it? That these ideas seem to permeate these languages and these cultures. In Second Peter, this is the verse I mentioned a moment ago, chapter 2, verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned. Now, this is very clear. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. Guess what that word is in the Greek? It's the word Tartarus. OK, this is the place in Greek mythology that is as far below hell as the earth is below heaven. This is what they say. It's the lowest, deepest part of hell. And delivered them into chains of darkness. It says they are imprisoned effectively. They're bound. And notice what they're there for. To be reserved unto judgment. 
And it goes on and says, just in case we're not clear of the context of the time frame, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So the whole thing is made very clear here. We've got the time frame, it's the time of the flood. We've got the angels that sinned at the time of the flood, and they were cast down, bound in hell, or the lowest part of hell, and they were held there. And it says, reserved unto judgment. Now, some scholars think that simply means they're waiting judgment. I think there's more here. I think this is implying that they are reserved for a time of judgment. Why is that? Well, 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 there's a few other verses that can allude to this. But very interestingly, in Revelation 9, we find that an angel is given a key to the bottomless pit. Well, that has got to be the lowest place. If when this is open, these horrible beings come up out of this bottomless pit and they cause havoc on the earth for five months or so. Now, I just, joining the dots together, it, to me it seems quite obvious that these angels that send have been bound and chained and have play, been placed here awaiting this time of judgment that God is going to bring on the earth. And God is going to allow them out to fulfill his will during that period of time. It's quite a scary thought, but Jude is another interesting one. And we've got a number of confirmations in the New Testament that this isn't just some fanciful idea. In Jude, uh, just one chapter, but verse 6 and 7 says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, okay, they, they didn't stay where they should have been, but left their own habitation. I'll come back to that word. Has he reserved in everlasting change under darkness uh, unto, uh, unto the judgment of the great day? That's interesting. You spoke about a specific time of judgment, isn't it? which is what I mentioned a moment ago. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication. And notice what he's saying. In the same way these angels did, going after strange flesh. So these angels clearly indulged in relationships that God never intended for them to have. Again, it's set forth as an example of suffering and the vengeance of eternal fire. Um, now this word habitation they left their own habitation that's a greek word oketerian it only appears twice in the new testament once here in jude and the second time in second corinthians 5 there it says this for in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven that word house is the same word oketerian it speaks of a dwelling place for the spirit the body is a dwelling place for the spirit now these angels had left their first estate and had taken on a bodily form. Okay, so all these scriptures all fit very, very neatly together. There's very little ambiguity when you start to look at this in context. Again, they left their own habitation. He's reserved an everlasting change. Exactly what Peter is telling us. Okay, so another possible explanation. This is what I think fits uh, all the details of scripture that we have. Is that the spirits in prison are the fallen angels of Genesis 6 who consorted with the daughters of men and going after strange flesh, as Jude puts it. Um, and the word prison here in chapter 319 that we're looking at refers to the place of judgment mentioned in Peter 2 as the chains of darkness. And it was this violation of God's order. Remember that Peter's been speaking about this order and authority that resulted in the flood, which explains, of course, why Peter mentions Noah as someone who endured hardship. But know too that Peter's theme is here of being subject to authority. And these angels weren't subject to the authority they should have had. These fallen angels were not subject to God, and therefore they were judged. Between Jesus' death and resurrection, he visited these fallen angels who were enchained in prison, 
and announce his victory over Satan and over every one of them. They, if you remember, their plan was to thwart God's purpose in bringing in the Messiah into the world. All of a sudden, Jesus turns up and they get this very rude visit in a sense where they suddenly are brought face to face with the reality that they failed in their mission, but Jesus succeeded in his. Again, that word preached is simply meaning to announce that Jesus announced. He's not preaching the gospel, but announced their doom and his victory over all angels and authorities. Again, and as I said, it's very likely that it's at this time that Jesus led captivity captive, rescuing the godly souls who were dwelling in Hades. Although they were in a separate part, a place referred to as paradise, Abraham's bosom, they were from that point taken to heaven. And now any believer that dies immediately goes to be with the Lord in heaven. And so make it very clear, there's not one hint here of anybody having a second chance to be saved after death. That's what some people have tried to draw from these verses. Let me read again, then we're just going to carry on. So by which also, by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of Jesus, he went, Jesus went and preached unto the spirits, the fallen angels, who were in prison in these chains in this lowest part of the earth, which sometime, which at some point were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, that's when this, this crime took place, while the ark was preparing, and it says, wherein few that is eight souls were saved by water. Peter's going to build on that point now. And he now goes on from the idea of the ark and the water. He says, the like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What he's saying very clearly here, this figure, is that baptism represents a complete break with one's past life. As the flood wiped away the old sinful world, so baptism pictures one's break from his old sinful nature and his entrance into this new life in Christ. We thought also again of the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, it's not the going into the water that saves us, but that of which the baptism speaks, and that is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That he who sent down into death could also say, all thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Psalm 42, 7, another messianic psalm looking forward to what Jesus would accomplish. Again, baptism is a symbol of what we've has already occurred in the heart and the life of one who has trusted Christ as his saviour or as their saviour and Lord. And then the last verse, got there. Who is gone into heaven. And is at the right hand of God. And notice angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now we get to that last verse. It ties everything together and makes sense of all the bits we've just gone through. You see, Jesus came. He did defeat Satan. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. He declared his victory over these angelic beings who in the time of the flood had tried to come and corrupt the whole human race. And by the way, you remember back in Genesis, it says that Noah was perfect in his generations. Noah wasn't perfect in terms of being sinless. Noah was perfect in terms of being genetically pure. That, that's exactly what the statement means. Noah hadn't been corrupted by this gene pool problem of these angelic beings infiltrating the human race. But that is why God had to send the flood. It was an act of mercy. It was an act of grace to save the human race rather than condemn. You see, people look at God and they complain that God is megalomaniacal and he's accused of genocide and so on. They don't understand what God did. Everything God did, he did out of love for 
the man that he created for human for humans for those that would ultimately put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. Hopefully you, you get all that. It kind of ties up together again that Jesus now has been demonstrated and proven to be above angels and authorities and powers. All of those now being made subject to him. He's enthroned at the right hand of God. He's at the seat of supreme honor to rule and reign over all creation. So amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus and Maranatha. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that you help us to unravel these things in our mind, Lord, to realize the depth of information and teaching we have in your word, to explain what has happened in the past. And Lord, also to illuminate just how incredible a victory you have accomplished. That Lord Jesus, you did make an open show of all the principalities and powers, those that were against God's will, that were against God's plan, that would have thwarted the plan to bring a saviour into this world, they've all been shown to be defeated because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, what a great position we now have that we have been purchased with the highest currency of all, with the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, your love for us is just expounded, Lord, as we start to think, Lord, of the incredible price you paid lord help us to to as peter's urging us to do to live lives that are different than the way we used to live just as we're reminded of baptism the old has gone the new has come oh lord just help us to grow in knowledge and grace and walk closely with our savior through this coming week we ask it in jesus name amen